0: Hello, everyone. This is JVL sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who is on vacation. Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I am joined today by Bill Crystal, my good friend, editor at large of the Bulwark. And Bill, not a lot of holiday cheer today. It's gonna be kind of a dark episode. Is that okay?
1: Uh, do I have a choice? Of course, it's of course it's okay. People expect no less. I mean, you're it's kind of your brand, and I've I've been fairly gloomy. I've got to say the last the last few weeks looking at the situation around us. So yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, let's start by talking about COVID. I wrote yesterday a, a long excavation of the House Select Subcommittee on the COVID response. I am deeply disappointed with how unserious the subcommittee is. In general, like its report reads like third grade partisan politics. You know, everything Donald Trump did was terrible. Everything Joe Biden has done is wonderful, Uh, which is not what the purpose of something like this should be. Uh, What we need is a very serious after action report like we had following 9-11, identifying the system's failures and figuring out how to fix them. Right, I mean, this is this is the largest government failure in certainly all of our lifetimes. Uh, we're over eight hundred thousand dead Americans in under twenty-four months. Uh, we we need to understand what's going on, and this House subcommittee is not going to get the job done. That said, when you strip away the partisan BS that's inside this, and you look at some of the the emails that they have turned over and some of the interview transcripts they did with people on the inside of the administration. It is nothing short of gobsmacking. And and we thought we knew, you know, to a large extent, the general contours of how bad things were inside the Trump administration in the early days. But uh, were, were you as surprised as I was or no?
1: Well, first, I very much agree with your general point. It would be nice to have a 9 commission type report. I don't know if we will. Maybe we'll have to put that together the way you did in the newsletter yesterday. will sell it and had a good piece in Slate. and we we'll just pick out the uh, key facts, the key uh, contemporaneous uh, documents, and make those uh, famous. And I mean, the narrative isn't that complicated. It's the good news. It's not We're not dealing with uh, foreign terrorists assembling in 10 different places and how did they get in. And, uh, and we're not even really dealing with kind of the level of complexity of – why did the fbi and the cia not talk to each other right we're dealing with i think a couple of pretty straightforward things and you make these points well in the newsletter i mean one trump and the total irresponsibility and beyond irresponsibility, just not caring not caring that tens of thousands ultimately hundreds of thousands of people would die because he wanted to make it look better and he wanted to uh say what he wanted to say and 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 he did say what he wanted to say. We all said it at the time. how responsible he was being, and, and we were right. I think it's an important point. Actually, let me let me make the second point for now, and then we should come back to Trump. Is I think people are, are still sliding too quickly over the how unbelievably bad that was, and sort of a sort of unusual in American politics. Presidents make plenty of mistakes, but this kind of willful uh, willingness to uh, consign tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans to an unnecessary death is kind of something else. But the second thing is the system also. Well, I guess two more things then. The second is the degree to which people uh, in his inner circle, the decent people, the public health professionals, I guess calculated that they were still better off going along. They could stop some bad things from happening. They undoubtedly did stop some bad things from happening and maybe helped accelerate a few good things. But the degree to which they kept quiet instead of speaking out is really astonishing. I remember what Olivia Troy it defected from the Trump administration and uh, came over to defending democracy together and Republican voters against Trump. And I, you know, we talked a lot. I talked a lot with her during that time. You talked with her too. I mean, the degree to which I mean, even she, and she's been wonderful, it took her a while to get out of the mindset of, well, we we have to just stay in there and make it as good as we can. And again, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing for people, for public servants to think, but uh, they could have done a lot of good for the country by blowing, some percentage of them could have left and blown whistles or stayed and blown whistles, incidentally, and make Trump fire them, uh, as opposed to uh, confining their, their disagreements to emails, or in the case of Deborah Birx, not going to a particular session, just absenting herself from D.C. on that day. Uh-huh. And then the final point, and, I'll, and then I'll be quiet and you should, we should go through all of them, because you, you've, thought, you've studied this stuff carefully, is the system itself. I believe aside aside the individuals, the public servants, uh, the appointees, uh, there were pretty big deficiencies in the system itself. And those we've seen carry on, I think, into the Biden administration.
0: Yeah. For instance, the FDA process on approving the rapid tests, right? you can, can go into a whole – this is one of the things where absolutely a failure of the Biden administration. The FDA has uh, a kind of ridiculous amount of box checking that has to be done to approve tests. That's the reason we don't have to, adequate numbers of tests right now. This should have been solved back in February of this year. But anyway, can we talk a little bit about the Deborah Burkses of the world? I have taken a very hard line against Deborah Burks. And she seems to me to be an especial case of somebody who was willfully going along, not only just going along and keeping her head down because she thought she could do good, but alibying Trump where needed. You know, stroking him, saying publicly things about the president's intelligence and intellect, which were simply false, which she didn't believe nobody believes, which aren't true. And all of which is done under the guise of, well, I had, if I wasn't there, then it would have been some MAGA head Yahoo, then it would have been Scott Atlas, you know, running it. And maybe that's true. There's something to that. But on the other hand, at some point, there is also, as you say, the opportunity cost of not going out and starting a public crusade from outside the administration about what's happening. And this happened during the Trump years over and over again at every level. You know, Jim Mattis leaves, and, you know, he writes a very nice, strongly worded resignation letter, and then he disappears from public life. John Kelly, right, first chief of staff, he he leaves and then goes off and whispers to Jeff Goldberg at the Atlantic, presumably on background, but never says another word publicly. The number of people who over and over again just decide you know, people who had real power, who if they had decided, I am going to turn myself into a martyr here. And and really just bang on about this might have been able to move things, might have been able to make a difference, might have certainly hardened public opinion in, in a useful way. So much of what happens in these things is the complicity of not people not being willing to take stands. And I don't understand it. Maybe it's always like this. Is it always like this? Is this human nature?
1: So I would distinguish a couple of things. I mean, I think it's a very good question. And, and you're I think you're right in general to be really outraged about it. Now, if you're in there and you're doing good, let's say you're the person at the third level who's running the vaccine process and you're arranging to buy hundreds of millions of them and you're working very closely with the CEO of Pfizer and everyone else. And, you know, you loathe Trump and you think he's doing a lot of damage, but you just, you that's your job and you think it's good for the country to get these vaccines as soon as possible. I have... Little problem, no problem with that. And little problem as you then go on some spectrum over towards Deborah Burks and or, or towards even worse rationalizers and some sycophants. Um, you know, there's somewhere there are different gradations of why you could or should have stayed in. But I think you, you, you point to a very important part, which is once you're out, why keep quiet? For me, that was the Madison Kelly dereliction of duty. And and again, it's one thing, okay, why should they just pop off, you could say, in the middle of 2018 or 2019? What good is it going to do? Trump's president until November 2020. Maybe they still have some access into the administration. They can still do some good. We get back into that somewhat grayish area. But there was an election on November 3rd, 2020. For me, that's the decisive sort of moment at which anyone who's no longer in there, and probably some people who are still in there, need to say, I have seen this person up close. I'm not going to reveal, if I think it's inappropriate, private conversations or, you know, think, certainly not classified information and so forth, and I'm not going to reveal anything that's going to damage the country for the next few months as long as he's president. But he should not be president for a second term. And what is so astonishing is how few of them, uh, really a handful only, Olivia Troy and Elizabeth Newman and a few others, were willing to and say- And Alex Vindman, right? Alex I mean, that's Vindman. about it. Yeah, I yeah. saw him up it's close, just... and he should not have a second term, and, you know, Vindman Somewhat different. I, I love Alex. Well, yeah, he testified before Congress and then was yeah. uh, was asked to and did his duty. So that's also another case where uh, uh, it's a yeah, different case. He did case, his duty
0: but, and John Bolton didn't. You know, John
1: Bolton saved everything for his book. But Bolton did to his credit. I would say Bolton went further than these others because Bolton, you know. For well, all the, fair enough. At least all, he put it in a book. Well, and also he yeah. said he wouldn't vote for Trump, remember, in September of 2020.
0: Yeah, no, I you know what? That's right. And well, no, he didn't
1: enough. quite say he could vote for Biden. And so there's a lot of hedge, hemming and hawing Good. But I, I do give him credit for saying I've seen this man up close and I can't vote for him. For he shouldn't be president for a second term. The failure to be willing to say that, and again, Deborah Burks could have said it on October 30th. I mean, she didn't, she could have done as much good as she could do for the country, and then you know dramatically resigned a week before the election. That would have been important. But no, they didn't. And uh, maybe there's some norms of public health as there are of the military and others, where you kind of keep your head down and do your job. Again, the military guys could tell themselves. We could probably prevent a lot of damage after November 3rd and before January 20th, and some of them did. And again, I don't, so I hope some of them got fired, like Esper. But, you know, so again, there are these complex, slightly complicated calculations, but you know, I'm totally with you in general. And especially on the on COVID, what's the actual, I mean, with all due respect to Deborah Burks, there are a lot of intelligent public health officials and Trump already was listening to the Scott Atlas's of the world, right? I mean, it's not yeah. like Larry Kudlow and, more importantly, uh, Peter Navarro and those people weren't already in the White House and pushing things. How much stuff, how much? How many bad things did Deborah Burks stop? I mean, maybe she did stop some. If so, she should say so. But I haven't heard that much about that.
0: Yeah, I believe her case for herself rests on the, I was so effective when I ran around the country and talked to the governors. That's where I really made a difference, you know, I... I I guess, maybe. But again, there, there's always an opportunity cost. There is a cost to not having spoken out and
1: to aiding and abetting the whole thing. Yeah, and I I so, it really muddies the waters of normal presidential errors, mistakes, incompetence, even a bit of venality perhaps, you know, adjusting things for political reasons when you shouldn't do so. It muddies the all those things which are American politics or politics as usual – and Trump's behavior and, and the line gets blurred in a way that it, it needn't be and shouldn't be, because this was a kind of malfeasance, misfeasance, I don't know what the, what the right word is, uh, dereliction of duty that, that you don't, we don't think God see every day. And we saw it with him on, of course, on on, on COVID. We saw it with him on, on democracy. So real, real twofer there, you know, I mean. Yeah.
0: And and yet, and yet he is got the support of 44% of the country even still today. That's, I mean, that's the, the gobsmacking part is that he's not 10% worse than anybody else in American history, right? It's it's all totally new, uncharted territory. And five years ago, if I had described to you what all that would look like, you would assume that he would have the support of 15% of the country.
1: Yeah, and I think this gets to your point about the system breakdown and the establishment's complicity in, in what happened and the failure to stand up to Trump in this respect, Think about Nixon. And I'm older than you considerably, and I remember I was in grad school then, I guess. You know, Nixon quit. There were a lot of Republicans who thought he'd been kind of done dirty, you know, he did some things that he shouldn't have done. But Kennedy and Johnson did too. And look how they bugged Martin Luther King and look at all these other politicians, some of it wasn't crazy, incidentally. And you know, Nixon did a little of this stuff, but ultimately it didn't do any didn't have any real effect, you might say. He tried to monkey with the 72 election a little bit. Uh, And uh, mostly backed off, ultimately. And uh, and the Congress found out what it found out. Anyway, these are people who, they were against his removal from office, that he had 50% support among Republicans the day he resigned. And I I imagine if you had polled them two years later, three years later, they would, some number of them would still have had a favorable opinion of Nixon. His favorable wouldn't have been, you know, 10% among Republicans. It would have been 30 or 40 or maybe 50 even. Uh, But, but... The establishment was strong enough then that it was not respectable to go around being a pro-Nixon Republican in 1976 or 78. You didn't have to go around denouncing him. You could privately have coffee with him and get his advice on foreign policy. There was a gradual rehabilitation coming. What he did was a lot less bad than what Trump did, obviously. but. But even so, the establishment was strong enough, the norms were strong enough, the safeguards were strong enough that it was everyone understood you couldn't allow that. And so people, even like Reagan, who had defended Nixon until pretty close to the end, they didn't make an issue of it one way or the other, but they certainly didn't embrace Richard Nixon. And that's, of course, the huge contrast with Trump, who's so much worse and so much more embraced to the point that he's now, the, of course, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination in 2024.
0: You have a piece up today saying that it turns out that the 2020 election was not D-Day. It was Dunkirk. And that's a very profound analogy. You, know, you want to just, just sketch it out for, for five seconds for people who haven't read it yet?
1: I've been using that analogy a bit, like in his you know, remarks and uh, informally, and I, I'm now worried, of course— that I, of course, I got it from someone else, which is entirely possible. Who can remember whether you said it to me or Pete Waiter said it to me or Mona Jaron said it to me or, or came out of some discussion with someone I don't even know, uh, you know, after an event somewhere. But but I think maybe I thought of it since I'm kind of a Churchill uh, fan. So maybe this would have occurred to me before others. No, so my, the simple thought is we kind of hoped the defeat of Trump would be D-Day. It would, not, it would not be the end of the fight. It wouldn't solve all problems. But it was sort of a key inflection point where... After that, you could see your way to the end and you would get to the end and in the case of D-Day, a year plus, and a year, I guess, and you know whatever the timetable would be for Trump and Trumpism. Uh, instead, it turned out to be Dunkirk well, it isn't that, for the reasons we just said. He's the leading, the Republican Party's gotten worse, not better. He's the leading the best chance to be the Republican nominee in 2024, uh, anti the anti-democracy forces and the anti, I don't know what the right word is. I use sanity in the piece, I think, but sanity, rationality, the pro-conspiracy forces are as strong or really stronger than ever. So it is more like Dunkirk. The, we escaped the worst case and we shouldn't ever forget that, which is Trump being reelected. I mean, that really is a very big deal. Uh, we were on the live stream the, a week or two ago, weren't we? And you you made this point, I think, that, well, you know, 2020 was a bad year in some ways. But the one thing you got to say is that Trump did lose. And then January 20th, he did leave office. And that's not nothing. And and we were right that we could not afford for him to be reelected. And all the conservative establishment types who were, oh, well, I'm I've got a more sophisticated view. I'm not never Trump. I'm maybe Trump. Or I'm Sort of Trump. Trump skeptical. Yeah. I'm just Trump's skeptical. But at the end of the day, you know, I think maybe there's, a, I mean, that, very important to, to acknowledge the, how important it was to defeat Trump and also to, I think, uh, wrap that around those people's necks, frankly, and a total lack of judgment and understanding of what was at stake. Having said that, it is like Dunkirk in the sense that we escaped a very bad situation, Uh, lived to fight another day. The system lived to fight another day, if you want to put it that way. Democracy lived to fight another day. But as was the case six months after Dunkirk or or whatever, uh, Britain was not winning exactly. We weren't in the war yet. And, you know, the the huge uphill struggle remained. And in some respects, I would say a year after, uh, well, at the end of this year, almost a year, whether a year after the election, slightly less than a year later than January 6th, we're sort of worse off in terms of democracy than we were, with the exception of Trump being out of office, a big exception. And we're sort of worse off in terms of conspiracy theorizing, rationality, truthfulness, and et cetera, in the body politic. Don't you think? I mean, am I, 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 I totally agree. Yeah. Let, me, let me give you two examples. Uh,
0: the first is that if we were in, let's pretend it's May 2020, right? Uh, we've got 97,000 Americans dead and I say to you, hey, guess what? It's going to turn out that we're going to have a vaccine that'll stop this thing, and but we're going to have thirty percent of the country, most of whom are concentrated in a single political party, and they're going to refuse to take the vaccine. Do you think that sounds realistic? I think most people would have said no. Most people would have said no. No, little anti-vax will be a standard eight to ten percent because you always have a standard eight to ten percent of the cranks, and they will be evenly distributed because it's just crankiness, it's just right. weirdness, and. Uh, and everything will be fine. It turns out that not only has the percentage of people who are anti-vax been much, much larger, but that because they've been concentrated in a single political party, they have become a constituent group that even the pro-vax people in that party feel like they have to pander to. That's crazy and not something we would have expected. Uh, Point number two, in May of 2020, many people, including the two of us, believed that the Republican Party and Donald Trump would wind up being abjectly anti-democratic and willing to attempt to overturn an election. People told us we were crazy, but we thought that we knew that. By the beginning of 2021, we, we all know it, know it, and yet people seem to care less about this sort of authoritarian streak, right. which is now comprising a very large part of one of our political parties, even though it's no longer theoretical matter. It's not an academic question. We now we now have the proof. We've seen the evidence. We've seen it happen. And yet the rest of the country is just kind of, well, you know, that's yeah. a problem. Again, all of these problems are society problems. They're not even really elite problems. You know, it, we get here because Susan Collins says, I'm not going to vote to convict Donald Trump on impeachment because I think he's learned his lesson, right? I mean, that, it's those little steps that you take along the way. And it's, it's the, the the voters and the people who look around and say, "Well, you know, I guess, you know, we've lost several hundred thousand people to COVID and sure that January 6th thing was bad, but uh I don't know, gas prices are high. So maybe we'll vote for him again." Like
1: <laughs> this is Yeah, no, another way of putting it. I mean, well, I think that's good is if you had said to us there's going to be January 6th, going to make Trump's going to lose and then try to overturn everything both with his own Justice Department and Defense Department and with Republicans at the state level, and then January 6th. So on the democracy front, it's going to be unquestionable that he's anti-democratic, that the people who worked for him were engaged in such an anti-democratic conspiracy, an attempt at usurpation, really, um, that the authoritarianism becomes you know, front and center. Uh, would we have said, yeah, but still in December of 2021, the party is going to be as Trumpy as ever, basically. Certainly more, I'd say, broadly anti-democratic down to the state and local level. Republican Senate candidates competing with each other to be demagogic, authoritarian, violence inciting, and so forth. And on the COVID front, we're going to have a vaccine in January. because it was December, right, that we got it, really. And it's going to work. But on the public health front, people are going to be a third of the, well, almost a third of the country is going to be crazy. And, some, and the system's not gonna be fixed much either, even though we're gonna have a better administration. And so we're not gonna do an ex- a really very good job, unfortunately, in saving lives and keeping people healthy. Um, those are two pretty, I mean, you would have thought the defeat of Trump and January 6th on the one hand, and the vaccine on the other would have laid the groundwork for a pretty good 2021. And in some respects, of course it did, in some respects things have improved. And, but in, in these two fundamental respects, it's pretty astonishing that the public is uh, more conspiracy minded and as authoritarian minded as it was a year and a half ago.
0: Yeah, it's really, this is, boy, I mean, we've talked about this so many times, but there is a question of whether or not decadence is at the heart of it, right? I mean, so people, people talked themselves into believing, I think, over the last 10 years or so, well, you know, look, the the public seems like we're a bunch of decadent, unserious people. But if there was ever a real crisis, then people would snap to and people would become serious again. And, you know, we could still be the country that responded to 9-11, the country that existed during the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. And we've now had that. We've had it with the most serious crisis in 100 years in America. And in fact, we've gone in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, I suppose, I mean, this sort of depends on one's the overall theory of history. I, so my only slight way I would put it, or, or slight qualification of what you said, or addition, I go, maybe it's better. The public turns out to be pretty unserious, a good chunk of it, uh, or pretty con- easily confused, or pretty easily preyed upon, deluded, et cetera. Maybe that's always been the case to some degree, one could say in, in, in response. But the elites were better. And I guess that, for me, you know... You, And actually, frankly, you can probably survive having pretty decadent elites with a pretty healthy and robust public. You can survive having a somewhat, let's say, sloppy and self-indulgent and silly and uh, even hysterical public if the elites are strong and keep them in effect. Don't let those hysterical sentiments manifest themselves too much uh, or think of intelligent ways to let them harmlessly manifest themselves. Weak elites and... A not so great public, irresponsible elites and an irresponsible public, that is really a recipe for, for disaster. And add in a system that just because of various, you know, things, parts of it not being updated and fixed and some unanticipated effects of certain aspects of the system that have been around a long time, a system that's pretty creaky, let's just say, you know, you add those three things together, that is not a good, uh, a good situation.
0: So so the British Expeditionary Force is back in the English countryside, and we, we are celebrating our, our great evacuation. What next? Right? What, what is, if, if, if we care about democracy and you're in it for the democracy, what are the next steps in the campaign? I mean, the culmination is 2024, obviously, where I think it is safe to assume that there is a high chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. Um. Not a, not, it's not a slam dunk, but I think uh, if he wants to run and there is not a health event, then he will be the nominee. And judging from everything we know about his character and his motivations and incentives, I think he has very strong incentive to run. Because the, you know, the, the, the argument that like, oh, he hates to lose has now been totally taken away because he can't lose. You know, he 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 knows that he has seventy million people in America who will think that he won, no matter what he did. So, what does he care if the people at the New York Times say he lost? Where do we go from here?
1: A good question. I mean, and of course, all of these analogies are, are limited, and 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 as we've learned in the last several years, forecasting the future is very difficult. I mean, some of these things could change faster than uh, than we fear. You know. Uh, it could be a little more of an upside shift than we expect. Just there was so much. Name more be- the
0: last time we had an upside <laughs> shift anywhere in the world. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, well, Think about that. Nineteen eighty nine. I mean, that was the huge, yeah. The huge that's surprise. the last time. This is maybe, this is maybe. A, yeah. You know,
0: George will George will used to say that as a boy, he would watch uh, watching the Cubs. He would he would you know his favorite player. He would think to himself as he struck out over and over again. Well, he's due. He's due. And it wasn't until he became a little bit more sophisticated at math that he realized that a 130 hitter is never due. You know, yeah. We are not due.
1: Well, maybe yeah. So with fair point, that was that was a good dark JBL point, but of course, maybe we are actually our 270 hitter and we and we're just hitting, you know, 190 this from, for now. It's country is a 270 hitter. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I guess my only point I'd say is uh, obviously 24 is huge, but 2022 is very big. Both the election itself, I mean, maybe, you know, it's baked in. People say that Republicans will win the House and all the normal rules of off-year elections. I'm not quite sure about that. It's such a volatile time. Who knows? They could screw things up, Roe v. Wade. There's a lot going on. But I think we began with the COVID Commission, and there's also the January 6th Commission. If on those two things, is it out of the question that the country could be in a better place? It is understanding of those two issues— by the end of 2022, I mean, could we have had elections in which some of the craziest Republicans have lost primaries to saner Republicans, in which some Democrats have made intelligent cases for both public health issues and other issues, of course, the economy and so forth, but also on Trump's authoritarianism, that the country sort of sees in a way what the, the cliff we're heading towards? I don't know. I mean, I think, but I think 22 is important. I, it's a little hard to write the scenario. If you want to use your, you know, this ridiculous the Dunkirk analogy, and they did but they did win the battle of Britain. After that, I mean, the Royal Air Force, you know, they 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 beat back the German attempt to to bomb them to smithereens and to lay the groundwork for a possible invasion. Even and around the rest of the world, things were at least stable enough that by the time uh, Hitler made the mistake of invading the Soviet Union and then and then we got attacked, it could be reversed. Uh, but it is, of course, a good, a good reminder that we, those two things had to happen to really reverse the course of, of World War II. Otherwise, at best, Britain would have sort of hung on with its, some of its uh, Commonwealth. So we're not going to get some you know, deus ex machina like, like what happened in 1941. So can we sort of struggle back to at least a position uh, where we stop going downhill and start making some progress on some of these things? Am I crazy to think the January 6th Committee could be meaningful. I mean, I, I'm still struck by the reaction to Liz Cheney. I was talking with Pete Winter about this yesterday, actually, we got together. I mean, she she's really sort of feels like she's broken through in a way that almost none of the other Trump critics has. And I think it's because she's totally focused and only focused on the urgent question of liberal democracy. She doesn't confuse it all with, here's my other critiques of 18 other things. She doesn't confuse it with defenses of 18 other things either, incidentally, some of which she, more of which she agrees with Republican orthodoxy than we do, I, I think. But- maybe there's some sign there that but of course then her race becomes important and the reaction to her victory or defeat becomes important so i i I, i'm just i'm struck and my instinct is that 2022 is a very important intermediate year here and if things slide downhill in 2022 culminating in a bad election in november um that's a tough hole to dig out of in, in 2023 and 2024 yeah and and finally of course a lot depends on the biden administration right i mean they'd be helpful if they didn't mess too many things up and if they had some successes and got some luck and maybe they will it would be it would be helpful on the other hand
0: it does feel as though a lot of the cake is baked in you know i I was looking the other day there was a headline a couple weeks ago about how i believe it was nebraska it could have been Oklahoma, but one of those two states—I believe it was Nebraska again. This is like three weeks ago. Had just recorded the lowest unemployment rate in the history of unemployment. Yeah, I think rates. it was
1: Nebraska, right? Right.
0: And I thought to myself, okay, I've always been told it's the economy, stupid. And if people are getting jobs and wages are going up, then then that's all anybody cares about. And this is this doesn't register. Unemployment keeps ticking down. You know, there there are good indicators out there as well. But the Biden administration doesn't get credit for any of those uh, with voters and somehow finds the sour spot on a lot of stuff. They found the sour spot on Afghanistan. They found the sour spot on the child tax credit, which mystifies me. I was convinced the child tax credit was going to be a transformative piece of legislation that was really going to open the way for pro-family populism for Democrats. And instead turns out to be coming something like the, the Cadillac driving welfare queens or something, <laughs> you know, where it is now an advantage issue for Republicans, which I do not understand at all. Um, I don't know. And I look at it and I, you know, again, historically, so, so the, the the three most recent reelected presidents are, are Obama, Bush and Clinton. Obama and Bush had vast reservoirs of goodwill. Leading into their re-elections, just personal goodwill with voters. Voters really liked them. Bush had a; he was a wartime president, and he was making an explicit case about the war being prosecuted. Biden does not have those reservoirs of goodwill with voters to draw on that Obama and Clinton did, uh, and I think that that is telling. You know. Obviously, the you know, the environments change. We're more polarized. Even getting like fifty-two percent approval is a Herculean task. But it does feel like all this is moving to a place where the center can't hold. Right? I mean, at some point, the polarization becomes so deep that nothing works.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, well, that's that's. Yeah. The, I mean, your focus on polarization, I think, is is right. And I, with the caveat that. As some people have pointed out, it's it's not a symmetrical polarization. It is polarization on both sides, to be sure, but with a kind of uh, radicalization on the right that's really extraordinary. And so the, the polarization slash radicalization uh, makes it uh, very hard just to govern, obviously, and Biden's found that out from the 50-50 Senate. But I agree. and something like the child, the, the lack of agility by Biden and by the Biden administration, whether it's on separating out the child tax credit and bringing that to the floor, sitting down with Romney, working out a deal and bringing it to the floor and let McConnell and the Republicans try to filibuster that. That's that's not such there. some of them are on the record as being four versions of that, and that's a cleaner vote than some complex bill with 15 different programs in it or something, some of which are pretty dubious in my opinion— uh, this is one that has had conservative support. Anyway, lack of legislative agility, I would say, and again on COVID, which should be just a laydown that if we we got an administration that understands and cares about public health, as opposed to one that was that didn't, um, I'm worried that he's botched the testing so much, an issue that we've all been we've been obsessed with, following the lead of many other many actual public health experts, the rapid testing, and somewhat botched the and the booster uh, rollout, if, if not the vaccine rollout itself. Uh, sufficiently that it's now murkier. Having said that, uh, so it is bad. So it's, it's bad. Having said that, the irresponsibility of the conservative elites, if I could just come back to my favorite theme, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial, I guess it was yesterday, maybe. Yes, uh, the short one.
0: Barrington
1: Declaration. Literally, I mean, they don't quite have the nerve to defend this lunatic declaration, this fake science and, you know, natural infection, that'll work great. Without vaccines, right? I now mean, you look at the death rates of people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, and of course, vaccinated and boosted and unvaccinated, and then people are still defending, yeah, let natural affection just rip through everything. Um, but they don't quite have the to defend it, so they attack the people who criticized it, you know, Fauci and Collins and others. Yeah. Uh, but that's why. Okay, if they don't want to retract their shameful, truly shameful uh, acquiescence in total quack. Science and and conspiracy theories and and, uh, and anti-vaccination hysteria. Uh, if they don't want to retract that and apologize for that, maybe they could just be quiet now, you know, or they could. Publish a conventional piece, which you and I might agree with, partly that they should have done more to get rapid tests approved. And this is and that's a classic conservative Wall Street Journal type deregulatory argument. This is FDA regulation set up for one thing, for diagnostic devices, not for public health. And let, let us quote 19 public health experts showing that this is crazy. And why is the Biden administration so passive in dealing with the bureaucracy? Totally standard. In this case, I think mostly true conservative argument. That's not what they're doing. It's very revealing that they need to go out of their way to defend or to criticize the critics of the Great Barrett Declaration, don't you think? I mean, it just shows how corrupt the conservative elites are.
0: It is uh, anti-anti-vax, or would it be anti-anti-anti-vax? I don't know. But it's one of these things where, you know, again, one needs to to signal sympathies with this important part of your constituents. Right. right? And, uh, yeah, but but until we live in a world where there is a price to be paid for this sort of behavior, we're going to get more of it. Right. This, is, this is how incentives work.
1: Yeah, and, and, and the lack of accountability for anyone watching. And this comes back, maybe we should close on this. I, I think I said this the other day, and I, I thought about it a little bit more. I just it hadn't really occurred to me. Could this have been different if the Senate had voted to convict Trump? If they'd been a real trial, the de- I hold the Democrats partly responsible. If the Democrats had not said, oh, it's Valentine's Day weekend or whatever it was, as I recall vaguely, I think that's what it was. Yeah. We're going to get out of here on Saturday. We're going to sit here for a week and have witnesses. And some of the stuff that we've now learned would have come out. And if it didn't, they would have at least made a fuss about people not producing documents. And we're going to do that for two weeks. And finally, slow down Biden's agenda by two weeks. We don't know if it would. We don't care. And then we're going to have a real trial. And that's the Democrats' responsibility. They controlled the Senate at that point. But, of course, the much bigger responsibility is the Republicans, only seven of whom voted to convict. If 25 Mitch McConnell had led half the Republican conference in the Senate to convict Trump, could that have lanced the boil in some ways, maybe? Um, I, I, I think that was a little more of a moment than... I guess, I mean, I, of course, wanted them to do that at the time, but I, I didn't kind of realize after it had happened that we just missed what might have been the biggest opportunity to to make a real difference in 2021.
0: Well, I mean, one thing it would have done is, it, by removing Trump as a potential nominee, right. it would have allowed the Republican Party to actually go through a post-mortem and, and all the accompanying infighting that comes with that, and thus would have allowed the potential for a pro-democratic caucus within the Republican Party to emerge. But-
1: or a less anti-democratic caucus. And I was thinking about that. So I think the way it works is if you impeach and convict you, then I have to separately also say that hey, this person should be disqualified from holding public office again. I think that's been done when other when judges have been convicted or maybe some others have been convicted of this. Uh, of course, Trump would have objected. He said, "I'm ignoring this. This is unconstitutional." God knows what he would have said, right?
0: That's right. That's a, you know. What, what if he then just runs anyway?
1: But at least yeah. then the Ron DeSantis of the world have sort of an incentive to say, "Oh no, we have to obey the Constitution." I mean, Mitch McConnell would have said that. I don't know. Conceivably, others would have. Ted Cruz would have had an incentive to say it. It would have muddied the, the Iowa waters. State
0: Republican Party would have would have put him on the ballot anyway. For well, the caucus, probably. Right? I mean, but
1: yeah. that would have been a little clearer that they're just ignoring God, you what you the imagine? United States Senate did, including with. A lot of Republicans. So I, it may, honestly, it might not have changed very much at all, you know, but yeah. I, it was a moment in retrospect, I think, where people were hurrying to move on and kind of hoping, I assume McConnell, you know, what this, it'll fade away. And of course, as you said, no one is held accountable and it hasn't. And the key point is, and the point of this whole conversation was it hasn't faded away. And in fact, it's gotten somewhat worse. The the virulence, the, uh, the infection has not receded. And it remains as dangerous as ever, uh, maybe more dangerous with the caveat that Trump's being gone, not president, is a huge, is a good thing.
0: So before we get out, uh, exogenous events are, are, you know, always have the opportunity to disrupt everything. The exogenous event that is on the horizon right now today is Russia and Ukraine. Um, what, what does it look like as going to happen over here. and This could be very, very bad, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a little, I was at an event, one of the great things until, of course, a week ago with Omicron, but for the last couple months was getting out a little bit and mixing and mingling and going to kinds of events where... Ugh, but, it's the worst. I know, they're they're bad and <laughs> uh, they are boring. And of course, one ends up ducking out of two-thirds of them. But you still get to chat with some people who know something. Whatever. So I was surprised at this particular event how many people, it was, I guess, off the record and all this, how many people thought Putin... I mean, these are serious people who know a lot, have been in government in both parties and so forth, who thought Putin would go in in a pretty big way to Ukraine. Maybe not try to conquer the whole country, but take part of it and uh, um, do some real damage and and do something bold to show the Russian people that he was he was not he was winning and the West was losing. Uh, Iran, I'm now very alarmed about. They've really spent a year kind of just uh, escalating the nuclear program with no real pushback from us. God knows with China. So, yes, there are major foreign policy challenges. I'm much more alarmed about them than I was just a month ago. Uh, the, and, I'm again, the Biden administration, I think, directionally is okay on these issues. You know, they're not doing anything terrible, mostly. But the Afghanistan pullout, which, ironically, is the one thing they did that was popular in the polls, uh, not the one, but a, a thing they did that was popular as an idea, It was done so badly, and and maybe also people had to, when they saw the real consequences, it wasn't so popular anymore, even if it had been done better. That conveyed – who cares about the polls at some point on foreign policy issues? It conveyed to the world a sense of weakness that I – I mean, I was against it. I was very critical of it. I wrote things in The Bulwark, as you recall, that were critical of it. We all did. But I actually – underestimated how much damage it would do. I've never run into people from all over the world, you know, diplomats and others, uh, people who've talked to diplomats and and serious people who, you know, say you, you that sent a signal to, to to people all over, to our allies, but also obviously to the Putins and G's and Iranian regimes of the world that we want to get out of places and we're going to do it in a pretty, if we want to, if Biden wants to do it, we're just going to do it. We're not going to be careful about allies and people who've worked with us we're not going to do it in an orderly way. We're not even going to give our allies much of a heads up, so uh, or consult them. So I, I think that did a lot of damage. So I'm I'm more worried about the whole foreign policy side of things than I was a couple of months ago.
0: What does Europe do if if Putin moves into Ukraine? I mean, this is there's the American component to this, but
1: there's also the European. Yeah, no, they're not going to do we much. We are if, not
0: a reliable. We are not a reliable ally, right? And
1: yeah, I mean. They're at best always queasy about dealing with in a tough way with Putin. They're a lot closer, and they also don't have whatever our tradition of standing up quite to, to Russia. You might say in some ways, but uh, they certainly, gonna gonna do the gas. They're yeah. certainly yeah. not going
0: to do anything. They certainly not
1: going to do anything if we don't. And the and the gas thing will be a huge issue. And uh, that that again that early signal that Biden sent, and I was unhappy about it. I think we criticized it in in the bulwark. But oh, the Nord Stream two, the yeah, Nord Stream two. But you know, you sort horrible. of think, okay, that was one decision. We're going to move on one. What sometimes underestimates, I think it's true really in foreign policy especially, how much a few decisions that stand out and that we here kind of lose sight of in the maelstrom of events uh, can really damage U.S. standing. And I'm, I'm pretty worried about the Biden administration standing uh, among our allies and uh, in, in the face of our, of our rivals uh, a year in. Well, Bill, thanks. This is yeah, great. I, I, I think I really helped you, Jonathan. Here, you know, you came on kind of darkish and uh, worried, and I've I've just been, Mister Charlie,
0: is never going to let the two of us sit down together on his show ever again without having him or Sarah or Mona or somebody to to bring a ray of sunshine here. 2022. It'll be even worse. Yeah, I
1: feel bad that we're ruining Sarah's... for Sarah. She always wants to be upbeat, and she's going to listen yeah. to this. She's a pretty diligent listener, and I don't know. I feel bad. I'm sorry, Sarah. I apologize on behalf you know, of JVL. and Anim- I just do animation.
0: want to, in defense of, of what we have just done here for the last 40 minutes, though, I would say that I don't think we engage in catastrophizing. No. I think that we have been basically write about everything important over the last two years, the bulwark, Uh, write about COVID, write about Trump, write about authoritarianism. Uh, And it is desperately important to be clear-eyed about these things because wishing them away or fixating on best case scenarios or pretending, well, he's learned his lesson this time, that is the road to perdition. And the the only way to fight for a better future and to try to make things better is to be clear-eyed about
1: about the present and to have a sense of urgency. Uh, I think, yeah. which I really think a lot of people who are otherwise, you know, kind of fairly sensible about things, just for some reason or other, don't quite have. Maybe because if you see it, how Cliff, you see it clearly in a way that gives you a sense of urgency. There's a real responsibility then to to act and not to sort of evade some of these choices.
0: All right, Bill, happy holidays. I will see you uh, in the new year. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Charlie will be back soon, I promise.